Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. People talk about loosening permitting restrictions in general. Usually, we go straight to the transmission point. And yes, the transmission is the stuff we need. My feeling is you can do that a lot more effectively if that actually is the goal by having direct transmission legislation. As we build out our supply chains of the future, our energy resources of the future, the geopolitics of this are going to be a big, big player as we think about the security of those supply chains, the security of those energy resources, and the types of trade-offs we are willing and able to make. On today's show, making it easier to build infrastructure in America, what we've learned about energy security since Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago, and some exciting developments in the world of batteries. I'm joined again by Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hi, Melissa, how are you? Hey, Ed, I'm doing great. Um, it's a foggy morning where I am. I'm on the road. But I'm excited about the fog because it reminds me of living in Monterey, California when my dad was stationed there. But also, spoiler, the person joining us today is a classmate of mine from graduate school 15 years ago. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, great to have you back. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome back Emily Grubert, who is an Associate Professor of Sustainable Energy Policy in the Keogh School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Hi, Emily. Many thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here and always a pleasure to catch up with Melissa. Exactly. Always nice to be hosting a class reunion. <laughs> so you were on the show uh, last year. Uh, what have you been doing since then? What are the big things you've been working on? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Mostly moving, um, but really starting to think a lot more about <laughs> what it means to actually transition to a decarbonized world and especially what that means in the building sector. We were saying just before we came on that you've been working in the uh, building trade in a very practical way over the weekend, right? That's Right. Putting up drywall? Yes. We had our water line pulled a few months ago and I finally got around to patching the wall. <laughs> it's very it's always a great thing to do, I think, if you can combine that, you know, the theoretical knowledge with the practical experience. It's great. <laughs> you know, the two things inform each other in very useful ways, I find. I have to confess I didn't reinsulate the patch. <gasps> So disappointed. Okay. So disappointed. Well, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's all right. We'll keep that quiet. Your secret's safe with us. I'm sure uh, not many people are listening. <laughs> so now, look, um, important thing also to mention is that you've also got a role as an advisor to the Department of Energy right now. But just to be absolutely clear, you're speaking here in a purely personal capacity, right? Absolutely. You're an academic, speaking as an academic, not in any sense, spokesperson for the department. And very importantly, any opinions we hear from you, they're very definitely your opinions, nothing to do with what the federal government thinks. Yeah, I can promise to give my own opinions. Fantastic. But now we've cleared that up, let's get on to our first topic. The thing I wanted to talk about, first of all, on the show, it's a very, very long-running saga. It's something we seem to have covered many times before on the Energy Gang. But there's a good reason, I think, to come back to it again today, which is these plans for permitting reform to make it easier to build infrastructure projects in the US. As I say, if you were listening to the show last year, you probably heard us several times talk about these attempts to build bipartisan support for reform, came up in Congress, never really went anywhere. Now we have a new Congress. And the Republicans have control of the House of Representatives, and apparently they're making their own attempt to deliver reform. They've been talking about a proposed bill, which they're calling, and this is hilarious, I always enjoy the way people try to name bills. This is the Building United States Infrastructure Through Limited Delays and Efficient Reviews Act. Work out what that is? 
Builder. The Builder, exactly. <laughs> it's the Builder Act. Yeah, so that's very nice. Anyway, and the point being, again, rather like the attempts at reform we saw last year, it's going to be reform that will make it easier to build stuff. And it'll make it easier both to build fossil fuel projects like oil and gas pipelines, LNG terminals, and also hopefully make it easier to build low carbon energy infrastructure including vitally needed power transmission in particular. It's been interesting to see the sort of alignment of views on this and the coalition building to support it. Garrett Graves, who is the congressman who's proposed this legislation, is sponsoring it in the House. He's Republican from Louisiana, and he said, I've got a quote from him here, he said, there are trillions of dollars recently appropriated to various infrastructure efforts, but when you take supply chain, inflation, labor costs, and add the increased costs of bureaucracy, we aren't going to be able to build anything. And that's essentially why he says we need reform. And then you have Jason Grumet, who is the CEO of the American Clean Power Association, which is a big renewable energy industry association. And he said recently, if we don't actually think honestly about the time frame, not only are we going to fail to spend this money, but we're going to fundamentally fail to use it in the way that's necessary to solve the climate problem. So, as I say, although this effort has not gone anywhere yet, it does still feel like there is a substantial base of support for it. So I'm interested in your thoughts, um, basically really, first of all, about what you make of this new initiative, how hopeful are you that there will actually be reform coming out of Washington? Uh, Melissa, what do you think? Uh, do you think now we're at last we're going to see real progress on permitting reform? I mean, I think there's a good chance that we see something substantial this year. Now, the question of if it's real or not, I would actually define that on if it's sufficient for accomplishing the different goals we have in terms of reducing emissions, because that's really what we're talking about. How do we get reform in place where we find that balance where we can build out the infrastructure that we're talking about when it comes to reducing emissions? Yeah, and, and definitely from my reading of the text, as it's just been proposed, it definitely is not so angled towards support for renewables as the previous versions were. If you compare with bills Joe mentioned brought to the Senate last year, which had special provisions in for power transmission and seemed very much angled towards encouraging power transmission projects and working out ways that the administration could facilitate and accelerate power transmission projects, the new version doesn't do that at all. It's much more kind of general yeah. uh, in terms of what it, it hopes its effects will be. And as you say, so it's going to be very interesting to see how the negotiation goes and to see if they are going to try and build bipartisan support for it, what changes they have to make and how much, I guess, they ha might have to accommodate a more renewables-friendly version of the bill. Emily, what do you make of it? What, what have you seen so far? Yeah, I think the whole permitting conversation as it relates to decarbonization is a particularly interesting one because as Melissa and you both point out, it's not that just making permitting easier automatically results in decarbonization. It may actually do the opposite. I think one of the real tricks with a lot of the deep decarbonization stuff is that it's so many more individual permitting decisions just because when you think about a power plant, like a wind farm or a solar farm is generally smaller than kind of a historic large centralized power station. So you might have, you know, 10 or 15 permitting decisions for the same amount of 
ultimate capacity in some cases, depending on how big those facilities are. There's some advantages to this distribution and some advantages to smaller facilities, but it does mean you have to make a permitting decision more often. Similarly with the transmission line, maybe it's all one project, but you have many, many landowners. And so you end up in situations, I think, a lot of the time where an easier permitting process facilitates incumbents with small numbers of projects much more than it facilitates newcomers with big numbers of projects, even though individual permitting decisions might be easier. And this is something I want to pick up on real quick that Emily said, that when you're talking about permitting decisions, as in there are many, as in there are lots of steps, the federal conversation absolutely matters, but state and local decisions in those processes matter a lot too. And so within all this, I don't know if y'all caught, I think it was in the spring of 2021, Aspen Institute, the Energy Environment Program, put out that final report, I think it was called Building Cleaner Faster. And it talked about state and local conformity. So if you have some kind of accelerated federal process, you still need to figure out how you get things through state permitting processes and through local permitting processes. And so to be clear about what you're both saying, is there some version of federal reform that's actually worse than nothing that could be counterproductive? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if we're talking about permitting reform as a pathway to deep decarbonization. Because again, if you just have something that kind of makes projects in general easier, there's not a lot of reason to believe that that wouldn't favor incumbents, at least from my perspective. I think in general too, like with both the federal and the state and local conversations, figuring out how to do permitting reform in a way that doesn't completely steamroll host communities and doing it in a way that makes that participation easier and makes it easier to come to actual project changes that make people happy with the project as opposed to just kind of trying to move it as quickly as possible, there's going to be a lot of, I think, ultimate backlash to those projects and things can stop later, even if they have a permit too. The last thing I will say on top of what Emily is saying is that when I talk to project developers, what they want is predictability. What they want to know is when something can get built, when they will have an approval, when they will have a thumbs up, thumbs down or some kind of feedback. And so in this reform process, Making sure that everything is clear and transparent and predictable. We know what the timelines are, all of that. We could make that better or worse, depending on how we pass reform. That's also a really interesting context point when talking to developers and people that are trying to get projects down. A Mm -hmm. question I really like to ask is, would you rather have a process that's faster but gets you to know faster as well? Or would you rather have a process that's only faster if it gets you to do the project that you actually want? And I think it's interesting when people are like, you know what, I'd rather have the no quickly and then Mm -hmm. we can go back and start it over. Some people don't feel that way. But I think when we talk about permitting reform, the solution isn't really to try to make sure that every single proposed project gets a permit. And that's, I think, something that kind of gets lost in the reform discussion sometimes. It's a really important point. And what do you think about the significance of the National Environmental Policy Act here? NEPA, this is the sort of bedrock environmental law for people who don't know it, um, signed into law actually by President Richard Nixon back in 1970, I think 1st of January 1970. And that governs a lot of things that happen in terms of um, environmental permitting and approvals and so on. And it was very interesting to notice in this text of the Builder Act, the Republican plan, that it says very explicitly in the first few sentences, this law is a reform of NEPA and changes NEPA in a variety of ways. What do you think about that? Does it make sense to be thinking about reforming NEPA? Does NEPA operate in ways that are counterproductive sometimes, do you think? I think this is another one of these cases where reform isn't really a binary. It's a really directed thing. Like There are a lot of things about the NEPA process that I would change if I had the opportunity to do so. And I don't think they're necessarily the things that people that are writing these bills want to change. Okay, fair enough. Totally take your point. But then what I do wonder about is the question of whether the status quo that we have at the moment is really 
unsustainable in the sense that if we keep things as they are right now, we're just not going to get the pace of change that we need. And so it's really important. As you say, it has to be the right reform, but we do definitely need some reform. I was looking at a very interesting piece in the New York Times the other day. Um, New York Times, they, here are the numbers that they cited. They said that at the end of 2021, there were more than 8,100 energy projects, and the vast majority of those being low-carbon energy, wind, solar, and batteries, waiting for permission to connect to the grid. And that was up from 5,600 the year before. So this huge growth, enormous excitement in investment in clean energy, and the grid emerging as a real choke point. And as I say, those are numbers from the end of 2021. Now we've got the Inflation Reduction Act, very fundamentally changing the economics of investment in wind and solar and storage, other forms of low carbon energy. It's presumably going to make even more of a difference and going to create even more pressure on the grid. And there was a very interesting study I saw recently, it was being talked about, it was actually published last year, but was being discussed again recently, this work by Jesse Jenkins at Princeton University and a team he had. And their calculation was, okay, let's look at the Inflation Reduction Act, look at the potential for decarbonisation that it creates, and let's look at the demand on the grid. And their calculation was that the total um, high voltage transmission capacity of the US needed to grow by about 2.3% a year. That's as it were in terms of sort of gigawatt miles of capacity for power transmission, but needed to grow by 2.3% a year for the next 10, 20 years out into the future. That is double the rate that we've achieved over the past 10 years, actually more than double. I think it's been growing at about 1% a year in the past decade. That does suggest, doesn't it, that, as I say, that fundamental point, the status quo is unsustainable, something really does need to change. Is that right? The transmission question, I think, is always a particularly interesting one, because when people talk about loosening permitting restrictions in general, usually we go straight to the transmission point. And like, yes, the transmission is the stuff we need. My feeling is you can do that a lot more effectively if that actually is the goal by having direct transmission legislation. We may not get that, but I think that there's a bit of a tendency to conflate all permitting with something that's going to result in a normative transition. If we actually do want this normative transition toward de decarbonization, I think really having to move into a space that supports that is kind of a prerequisite for good permitting reform. So doing permitting reform for everything without a decarbonization law or doing kind of general permitting reform and not specifically targeting transmission, I don't think is actually going to get us the results that we are looking for here. But you could intervene on the transmission side directly. I will also say that we've gone really fast, really close up to transmission and decarbonization or power and decarbonization. But let's roll back a couple of years. And so we rewind for a minute in our minds. And I wrote this piece with a colleague of mine at the Center on Global Energy Policy, David Hill, where we talked about the, I think it was around $4.6 trillion over the next decade that was going to be needed to update the country's infrastructure period. So to Emily's point, you know, we can focus in on transmission, but I'm thinking about roads, drinking water, yes, solar and wind projects, also natural gas pipelines. Like there's just a ton of stuff that when you look at the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates of like where the gaps are, this is way beyond just power lines, just power, and actually extends beyond a decarbonization question. Of course, that's what we're focused on here. 
As a civil engineer, I can't disagree with any of that, but I do question whether the permitting reform is really the piece that's preventing us from that. I mean, kind of to Ed's framing point in the beginning where people are talking about, you know, delays in projects because of supply chains and costs and inflation, that's not really a permitting issue. And so I think that as we have these discussions being super, super clear about what is actually a permitting issue and what isn't kind of helps us to figure out where that reform is actually needed. Because again, I do think that there are types of permitting reform that could be counterproductive in this situation. And and Melissa, what do you think about that idea of Emily then, which is that essentially if we want more transmission, that's what the legislation should focus on. And we actually want to make that very explicit and pass legislation that says we're going to make it easier to build power transmission rather than these kind of broad-based permitting efforts. I mean, I, I take your point and I hear what you've just been saying about there is actually a need for more infrastructure of all kinds, but just to ensure that we do focus the effort on transmission because it is so absolutely critical to everything happening in the electricity system, that it should be kind of singled out for special treatment. I mean, I absolutely don't disagree in any way that we need to figure out how to build transmission. I mean, we published a report with NYU's Institute of Policy Integrity back in December 2020. Two of the authors on the report actually are now in the general counsel's office at the Department of Energy, but the report was focused on building a new grid without new legislation. I feel like it's that um, song from middle school. It's a song that never ends. It just goes on and on my friends, which is, yes, ideally, I would have a policy that really targets the thing that I want to target, but we're making legislation, we're making laws, we're making rules, we're making processes in a country with 50 states and a bunch of territories, but a bunch of different interests and a bunch of different goals and a bunch of different priorities and a bunch of different metrics about what is needed. And so if the only thing that was needed was transmission authorities and we had a viable political pathway to passing targeted transmission policies, that would be great. And that would be a process that we could move forward on. But I, th- I think back to how we got the IRA passed, like as a country, how that happened. And I don't think any of us would disagree with the statement that it was a compromise. It was a process. And there were lots of different voices involved. And what came through is by no means the most economically efficient way or efficient way, period, to get decarbonization done. But it is the path that was before us that we could all get on board for. So I agree and also just would put that practical layer on it. So question, supposing it doesn't happen, as you say, supposing it's not possible to build that kind of support in Congress, bipartisan support it's going to have to be because of Republican control of the House of Representatives, and suppose you don't get legislation through that specifically supports electricity transmission, maybe not that changes permitting at all, and as you say, there's still all these other obstacles and issues to be taken into account and the way that state and local policies work, the way that electricity regulation works, the way that local communities have the ability to stop infrastructure development, and so on. What then? And is there a a point where you have to say, okay, we're going to need to think about a very different future for the electricity system, which is essentially one that doesn't rely on a lot more transmission being built out, and is one, I guess, that thinks about citing generation much closer to where the demand is, that thinks about presumably much more distributed energy resources of various kinds, distributed generation and storage, and demand response may be playing a bigger role and so on. And as I say, we have to kind of fundamentally reconfigure our thinking about what a low-carbon energy 
system looks like long term for the United States. Is that a possibility? How do you think about that? Now, I'm kind of a, a one note singer on this one, but this is partially why I think in a lot of energy supply spaces, I always start talking about deep building efficiency. And people are kind of like, okay, we're not talking about demand side right now. But when you start talking about the way that this grid is getting built, we are talking about the demand side. Because I think when you look forward to a fully decarbonized world a couple of decades from now or whatever that might be, the grid that we're looking at might be in the United States, we have about a terawatt of installed capacity right now. If we're looking at full electrification, all of the stuff that we talk about with sustainable aviation fuels, DAC, that kind of thing, we're maybe looking at six or seven terawatts of capacity in the next 30 years. That's seven times as much stuff as we have in smaller units. So this is partially why this is such a big problem. If you then actually look at things that kind of fundamentally and structurally reduce peak, such as having people's houses be incredibly energy efficient and kind of able to ride through temperature shifts, things like that, you get massive safety benefits, first of all, through climate change, which I think is really important, both in heat waves and in cold snaps that people might not be as used to and are therefore more dangerous, these types of things. But also, you get the ability to not have this massive coincident load a couple days a year where everybody needs to turn their heater on and it's all electric. That just in addition to reducing the total amount of energy people are using, it massively reduces the peak load. You know, I'm still working on this, so don't have the numbers out, but maybe you're talking about three terawatts instead of seven terawatts. That's still a massive thing. And I'm not trying to say that we don't need any transmission, but the amount of transmission and the amount of supply side resources we have are really fundamentally connected to that overall structure of what the demand looks like. People are always like, well, you know, building efficiency is really hard. It's, I'm not sure it's harder than building seven terawatts of uh, capacity with all of the intended transmission. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I do think that's um, a very compelling argument. It's going to be very interesting, obviously, to watch how this reform evolves in Congress over the, the weeks and months to come. There's talk about trying to get a vote this month on it, which seems pretty unlikely to me. And I think certainly that was sort of the pressure from the Republicans. I heard Democrats saying, well, hang on, hold your horses a bit. Maybe later in the year, maybe over the summer, when we've had a proper time to negotiate over this and to work out some kind of a compromise plan, then we'll get to it. So it may not be anything's happening very, very soon. But still, yeah, it's going to be really interesting one to watch over the months to come and definitely something I'm sure we'll be coming back to on the energy gang in the future. So now I wanted to move on to talk about our next topic, which is the question of energy security. It has, of course, been a little over a year since Russia invaded Ukraine in late February of 2022. And it's really striking, I think, if you look at some of the big energy markets how things seem to be kind of getting back to normal. If you look at where the oil market is now, Brent crude is trading at about $85 a barrel. That's actually lower than where it was in early 2022. If you look at natural gas prices in Europe, which you remember absolutely went sky high last year, natural gas on the main European benchmark now for delivery next month is trading at about $14 per million British thermal units, which is still kind of elevated, but it's down from nearly $100 per million British thermal units at its peak last August. That's a drop of about 85%. So in some ways, as I say, it feels like the turbulence in energy markets has subsided. But clearly, our ideas about energy security, the way we think about it, has been shaken up very profoundly by the events of the last year. And I think some of those changes, unlike what's happening in energy markets, 
are not going to be transient. They're going to be permanent. And I think people are going to have in the long term some pretty different ideas about energy security. But I'm interested in in both of your thoughts on that, really. I mean, when you think about energy security and the way you understand that term, do you think you think differently about it now because of the events of the past year? Emily, maybe you first on this. What do you think? Yeah, I don't really. I think that what we saw over the last year was obviously really challenging and really tragic for a lot of people. The form it took was unpredictable. The kind of thing that it was, I think, is something that people have been talking about in energy security spaces for a really long time. Like, we did not know it was going to happen then in that way. But I think part of the reason why people are interested in domestic energy supply or things like this does tend to reflect the notion that some supplies are not necessarily super secure. I think one thing I'm really interested in is how much people kind of look at the way that gas prices are changing again now, like you just said, much, much lower than they were in August and kind of assume everything's okay. I'm not 100% convinced it's not just because it's not winter anymore, frankly. But I think that when we look at a lot of the kinds of concerns people have had about the geopolitics of fossil fuels in particular for a long time, this is one of the types of outcomes that has been on the table. Yeah. And as you say, to your point about not winter anymore, They've also been very lucky with the kind of winter they had, generally very mild weather. Yes. It was a warm winter. The Russians, of course, always famously used to talk about general winter as being a very important contributor to their strategic effort. It's kind of been the other way around in Europe. A warm winter has really helped, and it's meant that they haven't needed to run down their stocks of gas. They have a lot of gas in storage. That's created these relatively benign market conditions they've got right now. But this is not going to be the last winter when there are going to be tensions between Europe and Russia. There's going to be another winter to get through and another one and another one after that. And as you say, the fact perhaps you could say they've been lucky this year doesn't necessarily tell you anything very much about the long term. Melissa, what do you think? I mean, this is a tough one. So when it comes to the geopolitics of all this and the winters, so I'm thinking about all the rabbits that were pulled out of hats and the winners and losers during this last winter to make sure that Europe did have that gas. So how many cargoes were diverted? What countries did not get the gas that they were going to? And, you know, Western Europe had a lot of capital, very rich part of the world that they could spend on this. Other regions do not. And so as we go into the next winter and the next winter and the next winter, I wonder how many rabbits are left in that hat. And I think, you know, we have very few tools to actually, you know, sort this out. And so I think as we go into next winter, we're going to be hoping it's mild again. And I, you know, that's just, that's just where it is. And when it comes to the geopolitics of this transition, there's a couple of different things on my mind. One, there's this conversation that keeps popping up about how if we get to the end state of all this, there will be no geopolitics. It's a gross generalization of it, but I'm like two things. That is a decarbonized future has different geopolitics, um, not a lack of them. And also the road to the future is a very, very bumpy one. And geopolitics and security are at the heart of that conversation. But I think I agree with the point that And Emily, tell me if I'm misinterpreting what you said, but that point of actually what happened brought to light things we knew, you know, tensions we already knew were there, things we already knew were problems. And when you think about security, my mind goes to Poland and continuing to burn coal. Why? Concerns over security. 
and concerns over being too reliant on pipeline gas from particular countries. Zoom into Latin America, you'll see parallel stories, um, you know, on and on and on. When we talk about the transition, we can't ignore security. And so we had this idea that perhaps it was lower in the rank order, you know, of important things and the weighting was perhaps different. And this is bringing it into the forefront that actually you have to think about security. Security is the core of getting emissions down. And so how do we address that? And I think what is happening right now with a bunch of different countries, and the United States has made you know clear statements on this with the IRA and other things, that as we build out our supply chains of the future, our energy resources of the future, the geopolitics of this are going to be a big, big player as we think about the security of those supply chains, the security of those energy resources, and the types of trade-offs we are willing and able to make. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And that's a great opportunity to bring in this quote that I wanted to use here, which I thought was very interesting. This was from um, Jens Stoltenberg, who's the Secretary General of NATO. And he was talking about this subject recently, the subject of energy security. He said, here we go. Not so long ago, many argued that importing Russian gas was purely an economic issue. It is not. It's a political issue. It's about our security, because Europe's dependency on Russian gas made us vulnerable. So we shouldn't make the same mistakes with China and other authoritarian regimes, which seems to be making exactly the point that, that you're talking about, Melissa, which is that there are going to be new issues of energy security raised in the energy transition, and perhaps in the same way that Russia is a global superpower in oil and gas, we're now looking at China as the global superpower in solar panels, battery storage, processing for battery raw materials, and so on. Do you think that raises energy security concerns? I mean, I think having any critical step in your supply chains, whether it's the production of minerals, the taking of those minerals and turning it into the precursor things you need to actually create the end thing you need, whether it's a battery or a solar panel or something else, if it's all concentrated in one country or two or even three, and especially if none of it is local, that's a trade-off you're choosing. And so there are risks associated with that. And and it's not just geopolitical risks. It's, you know, okay, I've got to ship something across an ocean. What's going on with the weather? It's There's a lot of different risks. And so the questions we have is how diversified do our supply chains need to be for us to feel like we're in a state that we are okay with? And again, this goes back to trade-offs and choosing your trade-offs. Every single one of these choices has trade-offs. So which ones are the ones that we're going to accept based on our priorities? It's interesting in light of what we were talking about before, because I think one of the things that still kind of continues to shock me is how much of the conversation about minerals in particular revolves around like China's controlling all of this, like China is doing a bad thing by controlling all of this, when the kind of core issue is that we just haven't developed any of those resources because we don't care to here. And that's not on China, right? And I think that when we talk about like what is it actually that we're committing to, this starts to become a question of geopolitics, but also a question of justice just in terms of if you are going to be demanding these kinds of materials, how are you getting them and who is responsible for getting them to you? So I don't know. I think that this it's kind of a twin conversation of like, oh, you know, we've neglected these supply chains for long enough that we're now pretty dependent on imports. But that's not necessarily because there's only one place where you can find sand. I mean, we can develop these things if we want to. But again, that goes back to the trade-offs of it. So, you know, for a while in a lot of these supply chains, we've kind of ignored the fact that in significant parts of the world, minerals are being pulled out of the ground with child labor, paid 50 cents or a dollar a day. 
all of these things. And, you know, that's part of our supply chains right now. Is that going to be something that we will support in the future? But then also on the trade-off, the cost of developing in a different way. One thing I will say when it comes to the choice to develop, and if we are going to choose to develop, whether it's mines or other parts of supply chains, you know, the the whole the whole value chain from, you know, soups to nuts, is where will we develop it? And who will not only experience what I hope will be minimize negative impacts of that development? We've learned a lot on how to get things out of the ground in a way that is more environmentally and, and health related. It's a safer situation. But on the flip side, who actually gets the opportunities that are developed with it? So not a precursor, we're going to dig this out of the ground and great, we'll build a school, but we're actually going to invest in a community in a different way. There's going to be a share of profits. And I know we had a very interesting discussion with tribal indigenous communities from North America. Predominantly, it was the U.S. and Canada in this case for this particular event at the center. But it was talking about the opportunities to share in the ownership of infrastructure, you know, having a 50% stake in a new transmission line and a new power project, but then how you finance it and make sure that whether it is a indigenous community in Canada or a, you know, tribe in the United States, how do they have the financing for it? How do they have access to enough capital to actually be able to access that ownership and that asset that will produce money over time? It's a multi-layered, complex conversation. Right. I mean, that's very interesting. And that initiative very clearly fits with the strategy that we're seeing from the administration right now, which is all about repatriating these supply chains. And as you say, working out all the very, all the various different ways that you can bring capacity into the United States, and you can develop all the elements in the supply chain that you need for these critical clean energy technologies and thinking about what you need to do in terms of, as you say, building support with communities, uh, getting financing in the right ways, creating the right economic incentives, and so on. I wanted to take that conversation in a slightly different direction, though, and to think about something that occurs to me about all this, which is the global implications of what's going on here in terms of this sort of intensified competition now between economies to secure these global supply chains for themselves. And it's clearly partly economic competition, right? And it's there's a sense that these low carbon technologies are the technologies of the future and the economies that succeed here are going to be the ones that have long-term economic success. And so the Inflation Reduction Act has had this strong response in many other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, where people have sort of first been protesting and then working out ways that they can emulate what the Inflation Reduction Act is doing. One of the things I wonder about this is what it means for kind of global climate policy and the sense that the world is trying to work together, for instance, through technology transfer and diffusion of best practice, and also diffusion of investment and capital in order to be able to reduce emissions, whether that kind of global cooperative effort is being then undermined by this intense international competition to build these industries. Is there something in that, do you think? Or am I imagining that? It definitely feels to me like there's a tension there. Emily, what do you think? It's interesting. I I haven't thought about it in those terms before. And to some extent, I think it's a little too soon to tell because I have a tendency to do this too. But I think a lot of us kind of talk about the transition as being farther along than it really is. 
we've made enormous progress in some ways, but also, you know, we're not really in a situation where most of the world is half decarbonized, even not even close to that in most cases. So I think that there's a lot of attention to these issues that kind of maybe isn't quite a problem yet. I think the one place where there is a bit of attention that I think is going to continue to be really challenging, and this is the the resource extraction background coming out, I guess. But when we think about a lot of the mineral supply chains in particular, the mismatch between how quickly some of these new technologies are developing and are developing associated with different chemistries or to avoid or to use certain kinds of materials that space and that sort of general decision about which batteries are the best or which, you know, magnet architectures are the best or whatever are not necessarily in great lock with the fact that it takes 15 or 20 years to develop a big mine. And even if we're able to minimize the amount of mining we have to do to support all of this kind of thing, we do have to mine the right things. And that time mismatch, I think, is going to continue to be challenging is partially why there is competition across countries that may have a better deposit of one thing or another. But this timing goes back to the critical point that we were talking about at the start of this discussion, which is, what is the goal? If the goal is to reach net zero by mid-century, clock's ticking. I think math, I'm looking at 27 years, not even. And so if it takes me 14, 15, much less 20 years to permit a mine, that's a direct tension. I mean, I'm just going to put it that way. That is a huge tension. And so as we look at what we're trying to accomplish and then what we would need to do to get there, which is to accelerate all of these processes about building stuff, and then back to the trade-offs, what you were asking at the beginning, Ed, you know, what are we willing to do to actually reach that timeline? If the ultimate goal is reaching net zero by mid-century, everything else kind of trickles in from there. So we only have so many years to develop different chemistries and figure out which ones are going to be front runners, you know, for that mid-century goal. Now, I'm going to put the caveat in of net zero doesn't end at 2050. There's an entire, you know, future beyond that that we have to think about. But in terms of minimizing those human health impacts, it's a really important timeline to keep in mind. And so right now, that, you know, average time to open a mine in the teens of years does not work unless we are willing to accept a trade-off of giving up control of those parts of our supply chains to whatever countries are willing to accelerate their processes. Right. So look, let's... Think about some good news on that front, though, because, I mean, as you say, those challenges clearly are very real and very significant and really need to be addressed. But to that point, to, as you put it, uh, Emily, which batteries are the best? I do think there's been some really fascinating progress just recently on that front. People may or may not know that batteries, in terms of the batteries you find in everything from your laptop to your phone, to EVs traditionally, they've been these uh, lithium, nickel, cobalt, aluminium oxide batteries, often known as NCA. And cobalt in particular, of course, has been very, very controversial issues in particular with human rights abuses, the use of child labor in the supply chain um, has raised huge concerns. And it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. And certainly the question of whether in moving towards lower carbon technologies where exacerbating human rights abuses is a very, very important one and something that really needs to be addressed. But what's been happening in the past two or three years or so is that we've had this huge shift in prevailing battery chemistries and batteries that don't need cobalt at all are starting to become really important for EVs. There's what they call lithium ferrophosphate batteries, that's LFP. They are 
typically lower cost and safer than the NCA batteries. They've typically also had lower performance. But what's happened just recently is that technology has been advanced quite a bit. And now they still don't have quite such good performance as the NCA batteries. But for shorter range EVs, they're actually perfectly good. Tesla revealed a number last year. They said that in the first quarter of 2022, almost half the vehicles they sold had these LFP batteries. And there was an announcement from Ford just recently. Ford's building a huge new battery plant in Michigan in association with a Chinese company using technology from the Chinese company CATL. And that's going to be building LFP batteries. And there was an interesting comment. Uh, Tesla had its investor day last week, and Elon Musk was talking about different battery chemistries. And he said, got the quote here, he said, you only need nickel, uh, meaning nickel batteries, for basically aircraft, for long-range boats, and for very long-range cars or trucks. The vast majority of the heavy lifting for electrification will be iron-based cells, in other words, LFP. And as he pointed out, iron is actually the most common element on Earth. So what do you think, Melissa? Is this something you're encouraged by? I mean, certainly encouraged by innovation and the thought of we can use a lot of different stuff to accomplish the goal. I mean, no offense to lithium or cobalt or anything else. Like, they're kind of nifty if you like, you know, studying those things. And if you are part of the Jackson School of Geosciences at Emily and my alma mater, you, you probably really enjoy studying them for themselves. I'm much more focused and a lot of them focus on, um, you know, what is this going to do for me? Like at the end of the day, I don't really care about the battery. I care about mobility. I care about getting from A to B when I want to get there. That's what matters. So I'm thinking about a couple different things, um, innovation and then concentration of resources. So when you look at oil and gas, for an example, and you look at the percent of production that comes from, let's say, the top three countries for oil, you know, that would that be U.S., Saudi Arabia and Russia. And I'm looking at numbers before everything that's gone that's happened in the last year. Actually, let's zoom back to kind of right at the beginning of COVID numbers. So that was about those three countries represented something like 45% of the production of oil around the world. Natural gas, you'd have the US, Russia, and Iran, and that would be around the same numbers, around 50%. And then you zoom into platinum, 90% coming from three countries: South Africa, Russia, Zimbabwe, lithium. 85 or so percent coming from three countries, Australia, Chile, and China. And so I'm wondering how much it goes back to the earlier conversation with how quickly we're going to move down this road. Those supply chains, the, the production of those things, it's been important, but it hasn't been at the forefront of our minds. And if we are actually committing to an accelerated transition to try to meet some mid-century goals, how will those numbers change? You know, will we drive it down as a world to a place where 80, 90%, okay, that drops to 45%, like with oil, is coming from three countries. And actually, there is a lot of production coming from other countries as well. Like, how will that change in tandem with actually the development of alternatives that can be developed in, again, a larger, diverse group of countries? I think in general, it's kind of always the thing that I come back to. But having a directed transition, I think, is so critical to this. Because as you say, like we've seen a number of these kinds of things where we realized that there was a problem with some material that we were using. So cadmium in solar panels being another pretty good example. And actually, we're early enough in the 
commitment phase to kind of play with that and try to change it. To Melissa's point, you can only do that so many times before you're kind of committed to a pretty significant path. And because we're so early, this seems like it happens more than it probably will over time. But we do know that because we're still so early, we can make some of those choices and we can innovate around some of those constraints. But I think the constraints need to be in place for us to really feel great about moving towards something. So if we just decide, like, we're not doing child labor, like, which we should, then that's something that we can actually eradicate in a way that's not necessarily associated with the mineral. But there's other kinds of things that are maybe more mineral attendant, like the cadmium things. So that's a really interesting. Like you talk about a directed energy transition. What do you mean by that? I mean, because I mean, it's not as if the sort of governments of the world are saying we have to stop using cobalt and therefore the industry moved away from cobalt. It was about presenting people with a certain set of economic incentives and different companies, technologists, scientists, and engineers worked out ways to find the innovations that were necessary in order to get away from cobalt. So isn't there something more that happens kind of organically and through essentially the operation of the market and private companies being able to innovate rather than being directed by governments? I mean, I'd rather not be in a situation where companies are making a voluntary choice on whether or not to use child labor. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm a little more of a command and control person than most people. But I think that in this case, again, it's not really cobalt that's the problem per se. It's the way we're mining it. Those are the kinds of things where regulatory frameworks have a way that you can really deal with it. I think in the directed energy transition, this kind of comes back full circle to the conversations about permitting too, though. If the goal is actually we need to be at net zero by mid-century, that's a really different context in which to be doing any of this than one where it's kind of a voluntary thing that some people are interested in. This is really hard to do, obviously, like having a normative transition in a extraordinarily diverse world in terms of who's actually trying to do what is actually something that's pretty challenging. But if we kind of think about there is really a justice implication here, there are whole kinds of other big implications for why we don't want climate change to get a lot worse than it's already going to be. I think we don't succeed unless we actually decide that that's the goal. If that's not the goal, we're not going to get there. And when we talk about how cobalt or lithium or nickel or copper, how any of the stuff is going to be pulled out of the ground, refined, turned to thing we want, we also need to overlay this with what is the process we're trying to develop, which isn't just a straight shot where we increase the amount of lithium we produce every year forever. It's actually a concept of blending in circularity. So how do we recycle all this stuff? So let me put some numbers against it. When you look at 2020 production of lithium versus 2050, if we go with existing technologies, I'm just going to lock in the net zero study from the IEA ed just for the time being. But if you go with those numbers, we're looking at a 450 times increase just over that of annual lithium production. And then on the flip side, when you talk about copper, which is not, you know, the the headline grabbing number, it's still an eight times increase in annual production. And that's off of a much, much larger base. So like 20 million metric tons per year, I think is the current production numbers. And so with this, how do we make sure that as we develop all of the different things we need, the mines, the processing, all of it, to actually support, if that is our goal, net zero by mid-century for the United States um, and for the globe as quickly as possible right around there. How do we make sure we're not locking ourselves into producing that every year forever, but actually starting to recycle it, actually creating that circular economy concept that's going to be so, so important if we just don't want to result in an entire other set of massive trade-offs that we're having to manage? 
Which is a huge advantage in the sense that a lot of the things we're talking about are not operational consumption mm-hmm. types of minerals. Yes. So something like coal, you have to keep burning forever, every exactly. year, always. These kinds of things are not necessarily. But I think that that point, and also something that I've been really excited about, but Theoria Frankos and Alyssa Kendall and her team and some other folks at UC Davis recently put out a thing through the Climate and Community Project really talking about how you think about structurally reducing demand for these minerals by making choices about how we're going to make mobility happen. So like more buses or closer together kinds of things, more walkability, these types of things. We have a lot of choices, kind of the same way with, you know, deep building energy efficiency dictates the size of the grid, like how we do mobility dictates how much lithium we need. And those kinds of questions, I think, are also where some of the policy and direction comes from. Yeah. And I I couldn't agree more on how important this pieces right here. We have known that public transport, that actually, you know, providing mobility, not just through personal cars, expanded forever and ever and ever and all the roads and infrastructure with them has so many other positive impacts. This is just one more. And so I feel like back to our earlier conversation, you know, we've known that these issues are there, but now the urgency of them and the our understanding of how big they could get if we don't address them is just even sharper in our focus. Yeah, those are great points, actually. That's a really fascinating set of issues that you raised. That is definitely something we should come back to on another show, I think. But unfortunately, I think we do uh, really have to park it there. I think we should quickly do our free electrons, personal items that we've brought in, interesting things that we've seen or that have happened to us. Um, Emily, what's yours? So this week, the river that is right outside my house has actually reached flood stage for the first time since we moved here. And I work a lot on hydropower. And one of the things that comes up in that context a lot of the time is that dams aren't just for power production, but really seeing the little dams on this river managing the flood has been pretty interesting firsthand for me. And you've had then, what, relatively good rainfall, snowfall this year? We got um, six or eight inches a couple of days ago. So it's all melted now and going back into the river. So I guess this is part of why there's flooding. Yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, that's uh, good to see. Melissa, what about you? Oh, Ed, it's always which ones do I talk about? <laughs> um, so choosing from the list is really, really tough. Um, so I've got two rabbit holes I've been going down lately. Um, one is actually a rabbit hole around winter in Europe and actually trying to understand something completely outside of my field, but very much impacts my field and all of our field, which is how we think about weather. So somebody made a comment to me that we weren't expecting the winter in Europe to be so mild because we've never had more than five uh, mild winters in a row. And this was the sixth one. And this got me going down a path of like the actual variability year on year on the severity of summers and winters. Because I know we talk about averages in Texas a lot and the average is about the same, but the extremes are more. So I'm trying to figure out what actually historic weather data can tell us about what we might expect in Europe coming winter. I'm sure lots of people are doing this. I'm just kind of the armchair scientist this time. Um, But then overlaying that with what we know about the changing climate and how that could affect what was a historic norm, something we'd expect over the last 50 or 100 years versus what we'd expect in the next 50, 100 years. The other thing that I'm looking at is actually, I. so my specialities are largely around power, definitely around decarbonization, public health. I can talk to you a lot about air pollution chemistry and how it affects our lungs and our hearts and our bodies. What I can't tell you as much about without the help of some of my colleagues at the Center on Global Energy Policy is investing in oil and gas resources and infrastructure and how that can play into a net zero future. Um, And so I actually have been really diving into this piece by my colleagues Gautam Jain and Luisa Palacios talking about what it means to actually keep supplies where they need to be in the near term without creating a bunch of assets in a very real way that we 
won't need in the same way in a net zero world. And they published something this last week, um, a commentary that dives into some of the issues I know I've been thinking about for a while and their backgrounds in finance, investing and oil and gas, I mean, gives them a depth um, to insights in that, that, you know, I wouldn't have from my own background. So I'm diving into this and trying to understand the nuances. Yeah, I noticed that report on your website. I thought it looks really fascinating. Haven't actually looked at it yet, but it's definitely on my reading list. Certainly one I'm going to be checking out. Mine, I just very quickly, I have to, to share this. And Emily, I particularly want to get your views on this, because it's related to uh, buildings and efficiency, which is that I've been relying on a heat pump for um, the past couple of weeks. Um, for heating in, in pretty low temperatures. So we have, um, what we've got is a heat pump and also baseboard heating, but the baseboard heating failed. And so now we have just the heat pump for heat in our home. And there's been a lot of discussion about do heat pumps kind of work in cold weather? Or are they going to be good enough? And um, it got down, I mean, I think at nights we kind of about 25 degrees. What is that if you're using uh, for, for Europeans, Canadians? I think it's about minus four centigrade. And I would say it was okay. It was sort of, um, uh, it was cool, I would say, inside. And we did actually get a little uh, electric space heater to use as well to back it up. But it was not bad in, in pretty challenging conditions. As I say, it was certainly, it was absolutely livable inside using just that heat pump. And so I was kind of encouraged by that and as I say that's my small contribution to the debate about are heat pumps good enough for heat in cold conditions I would say for me kind of almost just about good enough I don't know I mean what's your what's your take Emily on kind of heat pumps everywhere for everyone yeah, I think building envelope improvements and heat pumps together can do a ton. And so, yeah, like when you've got a heat pump working in less challenging conditions, it's going to work better. Emily, by the next time you come on, hopefully we will have sorted out the insulation and everything else we need in terms of the physical infrastructure of a home to make sure that everything's okay. And as you say, we've addressed those issues. So we do unfortunately have to leave it there. Um, many thanks, Emily, for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. And many thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Ed. Good to see you. And Emily, great to have this conversation. Many thanks to our producer, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist, and to our production assistant, Ella Miskin. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, your praise, criticism, comments, complaints, whatever it might be. We're very keen to hear ideas for future shows as well. If there's anything you think we ought to be covering, just let us know. You can find us on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks, and I'm also on Mastodon as at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. So please do keep those ideas and thoughts coming. And we'll be back again in two weeks' time for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>